Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hey everyone, hey everyone, welcome back to The Radical. I am your host and agitator, uh, Nick Turzo. This episode should publish uh, the weekend before the U.S. election, so I want to encourage all my lovely listeners to please vote. This election is definitely one for the books, and uh, may our republic survive it. I have a very special guest this week. Um, I've known this man since he was a teenager. Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket joins me this week. Having known Glenn for about 32 years, this conversation obviously gets quite deep and philosophical. With Toad the Wet Sprocket, he had experienced early success with many top 20 singles and millions of records sold. Glenn has gone on to many successful collaborations along with his very own critically acclaimed solo work. This is a good one, folks. We cover miles of road. Next up, my chat with the talented and lovely Glenn Phillips. Hello, Glenn Phillips. Hello, Nick Terzo. How are you this fine September day? I, uh, you know, so far so good. I am up. I am halfway caffeinated. Uh, I got a lot of work done already. So we're finishing up a, a toad record. And so it's that it's kind of like construction where, you know, all the drywall is up. But the, the you know the molding isn't on the corners, so the, the last ten percent of the work is taking eighty percent of the time. Mm. So it's recorded, mostly. Yeah, mostly. Just and it's fully written, then I suppose, if we can keep going backwards. <laughs> uh, except for yes, we can go backwards. Except for probably one song that I I kept. I was I was writing about like uh, Trump administration immigration policies. And hmm. I, it was an overreaching chorus. The chorus was something like no, nothing else matters now. And then COVID hit. And it's like, well, that that's not really true anymore, is it? And so I kind of rewrote and it was still too situational and in the moment. And then George Floyd happened. And I'm like, well, now that it, this really doesn't work. Like I, I just had to keep kind of expanding and changing the tone and, and realizing I had to get out of... Uh, timely narratives or or specific subject matter because this is the year that would not stop <laughs> so right so you had to do a, a larger arc of history yeah i mean unless you're capable of of getting a song like recorded and done and toad is just toad moves slowly and so uh in in order to have anything that's at all topical you have to basically get it out the next week these days which is is doable but uh, it just made me realize, like, I got to write, I got to zoom out as wide as possible, uh, just because, you know, it, it, you know, by by December, if you've left out the Civil War, you know, you're really missing the year. <laughs> is I mean, is it going to be? I mean, it sounded like it was going to be more overtly political. I mean, now will it be political in a more vague way? In a, in a way that might not get me sent to the gulag if there's a second term, you mean? <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I'm not being gulag safe. Uh, but it, it, I, there is, 
it's it's been it's an interesting question in art generally, right? And you know, looking, um, I find when things get tougher, I go to broader teachers, if that makes sense. Like, there, there I do want to be politically informed. I want to know what's happening, and at the same time, I go to you know Tara Brock or Mary Oliver. Like, I find myself wanting to go to poetry and going to kind of wisdom about how to. Um, handle tense situations that aren't as old as the last situation, right? I mean, and there's one thing to be reactive and, you know, stand up for what's truly happening around you. And then there's another thing to go, okay, human beings have been around 150,000 years and, you know, last 10,000, we've been doing this whole experiment with, you know, whatever we call culture right now um, and tool using and, you know, all these things. And, and like, well, we were using tools before then, you know, complex tools, uh, <laughs> languages, these things. Uh, so it, it, it's it's more going like, can I can I turn to wisdom that's a little older than right now? Because I mean, even with this degree of um, being unsettled, we're facing. I think you know, this is still uh, you know, from my personal perspective, it's like uh, it, it, this is an incredibly comfortable time to live, right? Yes. The fact that our starting point isn't that, you know, you walk downtown and you can tell whoever stole a loaf of bread because of their missing fingers and their chopped off nose, right? We're, we don't have like public torture. We don't like these were normal in in so many places for so long, uh, you know, and, and our, you know, I'm 50, I'm healthy, you know, people live longer and I mean, shorter now, but you know, so there are all these things to be kind of grateful for in how life is. And there's a lot of wisdom from people who found peace in times that were essentially, you know, undeniably more difficult than the world we live in now. I mean, uh, and we have new challenges of distraction and, uh, you know, weird belief systems. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just finding myself going to these older tools more often. Well, that's what's great is that, you know, you were such a prophet when you were a teenager that, you know, naming a record Bread and Circus, <laughs> you know, here we are today with plenty of that as you touched God. on distractions. Yeah, I guess so. I, I wouldn't say pro. I would, I would say I was like, uh, just, I was uh, an overthinker. <laughs> I'm still an overthinker. <laughs> that's that's all like good. A bit of a drama queen. <laughs> <laughs> So with a toad thing coming out, you know, and you just, you kind of, your last solo was swallowed by the news that your last solo record was that yeah. project. And that was when just a year ago or. Oh, uh, it was re-released uh, probably almost two years ago. I, okay. I, that was the only real record I've put out kind of since my divorce. And I, I wrote and recorded most of it uh, in the first year and a half after. And then I, I couldn't, put it out until I was further from the material. Um, so it was about two years mm. out from there and it's been six years. So I was looking at my calendar and like realizing it's been a really long time since I put out a record. Um, and actually even this Toad record started with a solo record that I decided to abandon. I was recording with Sean Watkins from Nickel Creek and uh, we, I, we were most about 80% of the way through recording an album. And I suddenly had, you know, it's like had this thing where I put my favorite songs on solo albums. Um, 
not that Toad's made a, you know, we've only made an album and an EP since, since we, you know, the old stuff, but I've been, I don't know. I like, I just had this moment of going like, I like playing my newer songs on the Toad record. And if I put them on a solo record, then I can't play them with Toad. And I'd like 10 times more people to hear these songs because I really love them. So I abandoned the solo record and uh, I'm making a Toad record. I just made a kind of like, you know, it, 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 it's, yeah, it's been a strange time to feel like I'm kind of maturing as an artist, but at the same time, I'm becoming kind of, as the whole music industry is as well, really changing. I'm becoming uh, more and more, I don't know if the word is irrelevant, but, you know, um, I don't really know how to get above the noise level. And I, I know I'm very well respected by other songwriters, but I don't have, I've never had that like NPR or press stamp of approval that, you know, gets you placements and gets you listened to. And so, um, in, in lieu of knowing how to break that barrier, I just decided to like, just put it out with the band and, and stop worrying about like trying to make a name for myself. Right. So, and that leads me to like, I'm going down a couple paths with that thought, um, you know, and more primarily around like your creativity, like how do you, uh, delineate really, um, your projects, you know, cause you kind of have some solo work, some collaborative work, a band that's been around for 32 years, 33 years. Like how, how do you compartmentalize that stuff? Or, I mean, you just explain an example. Um, it's been a strange question because I'm always, I think, I, I mean, I have a decent amount of breadth as a writer. And one of the good things the band did for me is, is we were limited enough in like our sound, um, which isn't a bad thing, right? I mean, having a palette is a really, actually a very powerful tool. And the thing I've realized as I've made all these solo records is I don't know what my palette is and my songwriting can go from things that are pretty out there to things that are, you know, a straightforward, almost country uh, song. And so writing in all those modalities, there's something about the sound of Toad that brought it all into center and made it all sound like one thing. So you could have a record where, you know, there's songs like Nancy you know, that's just this weird chromatic country song, you know, referencing Israeli psychics. And then you could go to reincarnation song, which is, you know, this bizarre <laughs> kind of, you know, screaming late night thing. And, and, uh, and somehow it all felt like the same band. Right. And, and, and now when I go to solo records, I, I don't have that a personal sense of, you know, confining my set of rules so that it always sounds like the same thing. Like there are people like Gregory Allen Isakoff who just, man, he always sounds like him. And he's, he does have some range, but he also manages to, you know, his records sound like these single pieces that are, um, and I've never figured out how to do that as a solo artist. So, um, so part of it is just the, the fact that the band brings it in. Uh, there's also stuff recently I'm working on a side project. I think I'll be calling it a narrow Valley that is more, um, kind of spiritual and yoga. I've always been afraid of, you know, putting out the hemp shirt midlife, uh, spiritual record, <laughs> but, um, but 
you know, I sing Shavasana a lot for my girlfriend's yoga classes and I've been leading community choirs, like these bedroom choirs, um, living room, not bedroom. Now it's bedroom because I'm doing it online, but uh, it's, you know, I've been doing and, you know, going to like grief ceremonies and doing this stuff that's like really directly spiritually oriented, kind of non-dogmatic, but extremely spiritual in nature. And it's, you know, after years of singing sad songs and kind of finding, how can I say this? Like finding some kind of joy and union by sharing my grief with people. And, you know, knowing that, when they hear me work through my grief, that they're somehow freed as well in a certain way. And then I had this experience of singing songs about like joy and hope in a room full of people where no one's performing and everyone's singing together. And I realized it made me feel more joyful and more hopeful. And it was like, I, I, I was at one point at this Esalen, um, you know, community singing event and was, you know, kind of on staff helping out with that. And and there were all these people doing, you know, gestalt therapy and, you know, deep men's meditation workshop and everything. There was all this seriousness and everybody was carrying around. They were doing the deep work. And I just felt like we were <laughs> cheating because we were just getting in a room and singing like beautiful songs. And some of them are, you know, harder. You know, there's a, the great lyric is like, every time I go into the darkness, I return with fistfuls of jewels, you know, but it's it's these beautiful songs and we were just walking around like grinning like idiots and super happy and, and realizing like, Oh, we've got the wonder drug, like no side effects, no hangover. Like you just sing uplifting songs together and you feel better. Like hell, <laughs> I, I didn't know it was so easy. <laughs> so, anyway, we're trying to work some of those, songs and this kind of other side of myself into something without, you know, tanking the brand into new agey territory. So, yeah, wow. I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I think at this point you've earned to do what you want to do. And I certainly encourage you down the spiritual and the more positive because the world can't get enough of that. You know, there's not enough, a big enough fire hose right now to drink from that. So, and there's um, also that. I'm Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'll just see. <laughs> um, I mean, with the Esalen stuff, I mean, are you actually involved on some level, like as an instructor or are you kind of just a community member? Uh, my friend Lisa Littlebird has been holding a, um, it's called uh, Singing on the Edge and it's like a community singing festival. Originally, uh, she would lead community singing work and, you know, I was there kind of, uh, you know, not not as like salaried staff, but just kind of in you know in the group assisting and helping out, and then later, facilitator of sorts. Yeah, and uh, later she started doing the singing on the edge festival, where it's the whole property and everybody's out there, and um, that was a, a so many song leaders, and basically like a song leading uh, community singing festival, like singing alive or village fire or um, song village. And there are all these really amazing festivals where people just get together, camp out. And for three days, all you do is sing. And there's like at any given moment, four, five, six different events happening. And you just decide which song leader you want to learn from and grab songs from. And, uh, it's, it's a really 
amazing world. And so she brought that to Esalen and I got to be one of the presenters for that. And actually there was supposed to be another thing at Esalen um, in August where I was going to teach songwriting uh, with, uh, with uh, Emily Salyers from Indigo Girls. And unfortunately that got canceled, but. Um, oh, wow. That would have been something. Yes, it would have. <laughs> I really <laughs> do that. We'll, we'll try it next year. Um, and are these like community singing events? Like, uh, like some of them you're talking to are more retreatish. Um, but are these in community? Tell like people a little bit more about that. Like what, you know, and what really do you take away from that? You seem really inspired by it. And I'd just be curious what these are and if they're in every community. Yeah. Well, they're in a lot of communities. I mean, part of what, when I ran into it, I'd been thinking for years and once again, overthinking instead of actually researching. I'd been thinking a lot about um, the artificiality of performance and kind of, you know, human beings, we probably evolved to sing before we talked. Um, you know, we have these beautiful rhythmic and tonal capacities. It's like, it, and it is so good um, neurologically, you know, physically to sing together. Uh, and so it's, uh, I was curious about having non-performative um, musical experiences. Like how could you craft something where there wasn't an us and a them, but uh, just a we, right? Creating something together. And so, and then I kind of, I bumped into Lisa and, and discovered community singing and discovered there was already this very thriving and diverse community. So um, the definition of community singing is often, um, it is mostly uh, non-audition choirs. So it's, um, you know, there's no voice shaming. It's not about singing perfectly. It's about singing uh, and, and being accepted as you are. Uh and they are generally non-performative. Some some choirs will do, you know, Golden Bridge Choir uh, in Los Angeles uh, with Maggie Wheeler and Emil. Uh, why am I forgetting his last name? Uh, and you know, the, there's choirs all over. Barbara McAfee has a has a choir or two in uh, the Minneapolis area. Um, there's lots in the Bay Area. There's lots in, uh, you know, up in uh, you know Washington State, and so. It's all around the country. Also in England, there was the natural voice uh, singing movement, which was this uh, kind of attitude towards taking people away from the trained voice. Um, and I think there's an experience that people have in church um, of singing together, right? You go there and you sing these songs and you feel better. And I, I've, and there are a lot of people who want to do that, but maybe don't want to have to swallow the dogmatic package of a religion, um, but want to kind of gain the benefit of being together in a spiritual context. And so, um, so people do anything from, you know, living room, like Beatles sing-alongs. There's a ton of people who just, they get together and they sing songs everybody knows and they have a little songbook and someone picks up a guitar and you just do Here Comes the Sun. And, uh, and then there are also, uh, a lot of people like Lawrence Cole is a person who will take um, some of his own words and own wisdom, but also take things like, you know, from Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, dwelling in mm -hmm. the present moment, uh, you know, dwelling in the present moment. I know this is the only moment. 
and his songs tend to have like one part like that and then a um, above it breathing in i calm body and mind breathing out i smile i smile so his songs will have anywhere from two to five parts um and it's easier for people who aren't musically adept to sing a counter melody instead of a harmony they tend to get lost in the overtones when singing harmonies um and so there's a lot of these songs that have counter melody as their basis and they're and they're very usually four songs uh, four lines or less orally taught so you're not looking at a page um and so when people are like their first time in a in a circle or when they're learning a new song it's like they sleep really well those nights because you're, as a non-singer, all of a sudden remembering words, remembering rhythm, you know, and then you're repeating these lines over and over and there's kind of a breath work, kirtan element almost. And so, um, and it, it will draw from a lot of, you know, for anywhere from gospel to Buddhist to, you know, Mary Oliver poems, Hafiz, uh, Rumi, you know, the Sufis. And um, so... It's a pretty wide range, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's happening all over the place. There's, um, I wish I could remember the name. Lisa has a website now of, uh, if you go to uh, thebirdsings.com, it would lead you to uh, another website, which the name of which I forget, uh, which has a registry of basically song leaders all around the country, uh, all around the world. And it might be singing worldwide dot com might be that um and it makes it so you can just yeah find a song leader find a community choir in your area and have the opportunity to sing i mean although it's a super spreader event now so we're all doing it online yep. <laughs> yeah another good thing ruined it went from the most wholesome activity you could possibly do to uh to, to <laughs> dangerous and you know most deathly. Um, so I think people, you know, people that kind of followed your early career and stuff might be like a little surprised at, you know, some of your darkness. I mean, you have a quest for spirituality, I think, throughout. Um, I think people maybe would have seen the earlier stuff is, I don't know, lighter, happier, so to speak. You know, your kids back then in Southern California. I don't know, though. Our very first album, okay, Bread and Circus, the first, way away, the first song on that is about a, a funeral. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's like there wasn't, I mean, it's funny. I, I think when people think of us as bright because, um, especially the third album, right. When we did fear, uh, yes. and once again, you were, uh, basically singularly responsible for anyone ever hearing about us. Uh, so for those of you who don't, or do you want to tell the story? I, I don't I talk generally anymore. tell stories about myself on here. So, okay. I'll tell it. So we recorded our first album for like 600 bucks. I was, I think, 16 at the time. Uh, we'd recorded two songs as the backup band for a friend. And he said, as payment, we'd get to record two songs of our own. And we recorded two live lead vocals, live everything. And we're like, that was fun. Let's do eight more. Then we'll have a record. So that was Bread and Circus. And then the second record, um, that took 48 hours to make. And then uh, Pale, I think we spent uh, like two weeks on or something and spent $6,000 on. And it was produced by Marvin Etzioni, who was managed by Ron Sobel, who worked at ASCAP, where a young man named Nick Terzo uh, also worked. 
he heard the first album, Bread and Circus, and started making cassette copies in his office and sending them to A&R people. Uh, we had never sent out a demo. Uh, and next thing we knew, we had, I believe, eight or nine major labels bidding to sign us. I think it started with Vicki Hamilton at Geffen, which created, uh, she was public about liking us. And, um, and so there was this moment where we went from not even, I, I was planning on finishing the record and then going to San Francisco and being a high school teacher. I wanted to teach social sciences and arts at high school because I thought that I was too sensitive to um, successfully withstand the public scrutiny of uh, an arts career. And I, I was in certain ways really right. <laughs> it fucked me up. Um, but uh, despite my best efforts not to, uh, Nick Nick uh, ended up sending this music out, and and then we ended up signing with uh, Sony Records, who was the only. It was they were the one label. Uh, they were at this point of trying to make a name for themselves uh, as being people who actually did artist development. Donny Einer was new at the company. They signed us and Poydog Pondering uh, in an effort to kind of show that they could allow indie bands to do their thing and let them grow naturally. And uh, Nick, you ended up signing on with them as A&R then in the beginning of a, a really uh, successful career uh, in A&R. Simultaneously, before you yeah. guys had kind of made your decision, kind of oddly. Uh-huh. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, and, and, uh, we, you know, our management, I mean, it was funny and we had our manager before and they're like, yeah, you guys don't need to get signed. And like, you know, we had a manager in town, but they hadn't sent out any, you know, they didn't think we were going to get signed. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> um, they were just helping us, you know, book shows and whatever. And, and they kept us in this kind of punk rock mentality of like, you know, take a minimal amount for licensing for the first two records, only take an advance for your recording expenses, like be the cheapest band on Sony uh, for Sony. And then you'll have a career because they won't, you won't have to have a single first thing. And I mean, there was wisdom in that. I think we were doing well on the college circuit, but we didn't even have um, a, a hit until nine months into our third record was, was all I want. And I mean, I think we were going to get to make another record, but probably if we hadn't had a hit on that record, we would have been done. Um, and yeah, we'd been already on the road for nine months when All I Want came out. And that was kind of um, a lot of that, I, I think, was was Tom Gibson, who was our product manager, kind of pushing for one more round and convincing the radio people we could do it. And then and it kind of went went where it went. Yeah. You know, the advocacy inside of a label, you know, we talk about that here occasionally, you know, it's just so, I don't know. I, I'm not sure artists know sometimes like how much the people that are there have to go and like really put the hammer down on their own building and their own colleagues to get things done for the artist. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, and, and Tom was, Tom was a good teammate. Um, he was a great a believer. <laughs> and so, I mean, Ron Oberman, who just, Yes. The way uh, Ron last year, um, you know, Ron was with us at the beginning and I'm trying to remember the time, like there was a time where it was kind of team A&R 
with you as well. And there was Chuck Plotkin after Ron. Like, I forget when- Yeah, I I worked with Ron, you know, on your first two, you know, where you were spending Sony money on making records, you know, with Gavin McKellop. So the the first two uh, Columbia records that were- Mm -hmm done in in house not in house but yeah recorded so, they weren't the licensed indie yes records. yes yeah and so the team there and once again we we got so lucky in having i mean i remember the difference when we came uh, when we had david Kahn on on toy uh coil i think it was david Kahn, and and just playing him you know 30 songs having him go I'll play play the play the third one again. That could be a song. <laughs> like that was it. And and as opposed to playing uh, music for Chuck Plotkin, who listened to the whole album and he's like, "Wow, that's a wild stew." You could tell so many narratives with this record. You could really tell a lot of different stories. Have you thought about like the emotional ride you want to take people on? Like Chuck defined his job as protecting us from the radio people so that we could make a piece of art. Like it was fucking awesome. And, and once again, Ron, you know, one of the reasons we went with Columbia and took as little money as we did was we wanted to make great records and not think about singles. I mean, and, you know, proof is in the pudding that, you know, we almost didn't put all I want on the record. And then we didn't put good intentions on the record. Right. (laughs) You know, and so we were, you know, making the, I don't know, it, it, like going in on that record and, you know, with you and Ron, it was like, you just wanted us to make a record we were really proud of. And we didn't have this commercial um, pressure. And I mean, what happened was when we made Coil, the last Toad record, we took the money because we realized, I think we'd sold more than a million and a half records by the time we saw our first royalty check. And we were, we hadn't been taking, you know, we were cheap for that label. Uh, And we're like, huh, if we're not going to get paid, (laughs) maybe we should get paid up front. And as soon as we took the money, we had the pressure and we should have never done that. Um, You can't kind of, and it was a nineties thing too, where I think bands had this weird, like it's hard to explain to people how everybody would shit on their own success back then. And that there was this, like, you'd be on a major label, but you didn't want to be a sellout. You wanted to be real and authentic. And so like, you know, you think of like Pearl Jam and uh, Counting Crows, like they wouldn't even play their single or they'd make it unrecognizable. Like this idea of somehow success being a terrible thing like and that conflict doesn't exist the 90s was really weird that way i think you know nirvana blew a hole through it in some to some degree you know what i mean and but i think you're right i think people were kind of juggling this almost uh i gotta keep my credibility even though i'm signed to this behemoth um, corporation i understand that struggle and that part got to us because i think we we felt like we were a credible indie band and we were doing it right. And when All I Want was a hit, we became like a punchline for people talking about how indie had been destroyed. Mm. Uh, and, you know, remember Tower Pulse magazine? There was that guy who like literally every column would, would just use us as a punching bag. 
Um, I, I try to, I guess I forget those things. That's crazy. He did. Oh, I didn't, I don't forget. I'm unfortunate for you. Uh, no, it was terrible for me, wow. <laughs> but I mean, in, inside in the band, we always felt like, no, we're not pop. We're from, we're, we're fucking, you know, we were like, and we got this band together cause we were listening to replacements and Husker do. And like, we're not pop help. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so it was really hard, uh, you know, spin wouldn't write about us. Right. When we came out with Dulcinea, there was this, like, I, I remember we hired the independent publicist who had done the career turnaround for, I forget what her name was. She had done the, uh, John Mellencamp makeover. And mm. we were like, well, if she can do that, she can do us. This should be shooting fish in a barrel. And she, I remember her like crying on the phone call. Uh, when her time was done with us and she just said, I didn't know how hard it is. I don't know what to say. They won't even listen to the record. They just hate you. And I'm so sorry. Like we were like toxic in the press. And, uh, and once again, I don't know why, <laughs> but we were, <laughs> they, they know everything. So it was just, it was a heavy Kidding. time for like a certain kind of credibility and heaviness. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was strange anyway. So, so getting back to where we were, <laughs> no, no, but that was good. Getting back to where we were though. I mean, did the kind of like exploration of like the spirituality part and all that come from your parents? I mean, was that in your household? <laughs> so, that was a tangential moment. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I was raised in a kind of weird, um, I guess when, when I, I didn't think of it as a very California thing because my parents were both so very Midwestern, but, um, my, you know, my mother, uh, was from Lexington reformed Jewish. And so I was, you know, raised with, uh, going to Hebrew school and, uh, you know, going to the high holy days and had a bar mitzvah, but it was in a very, it was in an era of reformed Judaism where I would say it was less spiritual and more ethical. It was about like Zionism and Holocaust guilt and good, strong ethics. But I was, you know, the idea of, you know, the, the Torah and everything is, you know, these are stories. This is, this is not, this is not a historical document. We're not going to pretend it is. This is a way of learning about, you know, spirituality in life. And, uh, let's, let's see what jewels are there. And so, that was, um, you know, there, there was a, a good ethical education in there. Um, but my dad, on the other hand, he'd been raised Presbyterian, but he was a Zen meditator. He took me to local Zen priory. He gave me books on Sufism, uh, like the, the, there are these books by Idris Shah, the stories of the uh, Mullah Nasruddin, gave me the Tao Te Ching, um, you know, all when I was probably, you know, 15 or younger, I think meditation courses, I was probably 12. Um, and so I had the, a, a very non-dogmatic uh, spirituality as a kid. And I, I think it's also why like the Sufis resonate so much with me is it's, um, it's a very loose definition of God. And, you know, God is a, a word that I described myself as a spiritual atheist or something for a long time. And in the last few years, I've just said, fuck it. Why not, why not say the word God again? Cause I like it. Um, mm. I think of God as like just enough personification to have a direction in which to offer thanks. 
because uh, the the universe is is so insanely beautiful and weird, and uh, it's so um, complex and random and logical and and insanely infinitely beautiful. Uh, like whatever, um, whether you're going from you know string theory all the way up to uh, you know astronomy and just you know just you know astrophys the physics of the large right um or humanity or just the fucking human mind is so beautiful and unknowable and infinitely complex like there's no level of zoom at which there isn't an infinite number of details to pay attention to and uh i mean my dad gave me a curiosity uh he's a most curious and broadly educated person I've ever met. And uh, he had a, an ecstatic nature about science and knowledge. He was a physicist, uh, electronic engineer, programmer. Um, and he, you know, he would go to bed by working calculus uh, proofs. Uh, and like that's how he would relax his mind. Interestingly, Charlie, keyboard player in, in Counting Crows, works proofs before going on stage to calm his mind. Um, so that idea of allowing your curiosity uh, free reign and encouraging it and being capable of like being curious about just about anything um, is hopefully a skill he gave me. And so for me, God is almost a way of saying that, that like the beauty never ends. The wonder never ends. There's, there's nothing you can look at that doesn't follow certain uh, rules of emergence and, and logic and complexity in a way. You know, and once again, I think where people go, I, the thing I don't understand in religion is to then try to say, therefore, there is something that looks and thinks the way I do, but bigger and somehow invisible that made all this happen. And it's a plan of something. It's like more recognizing there's there's a structure uh, to the universe or many structures, and those structures are intricate and beautiful and and harmonic. And that you know, like Hafiz's statement, you know, there's this you know we go to the place where everything is music. And if you look at string theory, there's even a, a chapter in Brian Greene's Elegant Universe talking about the the title of the chapter is Everything Is Music, and that uh, if you if you're looking at string theory, even at the very root of all matter and gravity and existence is essentially harmony. And uh, I love this idea that, you know, singing is somehow um, this distillation of the very language by which existence is woven. And it's this tiny little low bandwidth microcosm of the same uh, symphony that is uh the world we live in and all the worlds, once again, if you're going by string theory, all the worlds we can't even perceive uh, because we're kind of locked into three dimensions plus time. Uh, so, and only linear time. So um, that was another long language. So, uh, I mean, uh, another long, I guess it wasn't a tangent. So for me, spirituality and science and art are all like really intrinsically linked. And, um, and to me, there is uh, an ecstatic nature to prayer. And when I think of prayer, I, I don't think of like appealing to something outside of oneself or separate from oneself. 
Um, and, you know, asking it to do you a transactional favor, I think transactional spirituality kind of baffles me. Um, it's a more a matter of the ability so does that have to do with the manifestation of kind of physical or money or, you know, well, yeah, let's say, I mean, you want to go into like, you know, uh, you know, spiritual materialism, right? You have prosperity doctrine. Can go straight to Fred, whatever his name was, you know, the Trump family's old, uh, the, you know, how to win friends and influence people kind of guy uh, who, you know, this idea of prosperity doctrine, where if you're, or, you know, if you're doing it right spiritually, that you'll be monetarily compensated for that. Um, I, I mean, I would say a real prayer is like, instead of God, please help me live the lottery, a, a real prayer prayer in, in my book for me, uh, would be, you know, give me, uh, give me the strength to either show up to accomplish the things I want to show up. May I find that resource in myself and confidence, um, which is just asking myself to draw a little deeper into being present in the moment, or, uh, may I, may I have the resource to accept what comes to me, uh, and accept it with gratitude and learn from it. Meaning if it is illness that comes to me, if it is sadness and loss and grief, uh, because, you know, once again, love plus time equals grief. Uh, we don't like the things we love the most to change too rapidly. And when we uh, lose a loved one, uh, when we become ill, when we lose a home, when we lose our economic status or our security, um, there's grief in there. And these are because these are things we love deeply and we don't want them to change. And they all will. You know, everything we love goes away. Um, as just a fact of life, whether we die first or they die first, our life is finite, finite and everything changes. And so, um, the ability to, um, stay in wonder and find the resources to accept that change. Um, that to me is, is important to do that. That to me is like the basis of spirituality and to even look at, you know, grief and pain and loss, uh, with uh, inquisitiveness and curiosity and a sense of awe and wonder and um, to take those painful experiences in and let them be like a soil that beauty can grow out of. I'm getting very Mary Oliver in middle age. <laughs> more well, no, look, I'm, um, thank you for expanding on that. Now, seriously, that's, I'm, fascinated and I, I like your point of view kind of on that spirituality part because there is a lot of people tying it together with the commercial and money and I don't know. Yeah, seems, I don't think it's counterintuitive, but I mean for me it's it's one of the weird questions of of for me in my life right now is I'm I'm at a point where the this is the material um that really is the most important to me. And it's integrated more and more into the songs. Um, I, I feel like I had a big shift before uh, Swallowed by the New. I was hopeless about putting out new music. I didn't, I, I was like, listen, the career is over. I don't want to be another nostalgia band walking around like, um, you know, I don't know, living off the dregs of this brief moment of commercial success from my early 20s. Like, I, 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 there was no way to take that on without either feeling deluded or like a loser, right? 
Um, you know, I peaked commercially probably by the age of 24 and I'm going to be 50 this year. And so, um, if I look at my life in terms of, of gauging any kind of success by, uh, you know, what the, the external musical, you know, the external stardom machine or whatever, uh, I don't even exist anymore in terms of the powers of 10 of audience I have lost and, you know, loss of revenue. And so, and I am still very grateful that I am in a band that can go, we can tour in a bus even, although I have a lot of questions about the sustainability of touring these days. It's been so nice not to have this impact on the earth. It's so negative, you know? Um, and Toad is lucky enough even though we had singles, I think we have an audience that really leans forward into our new material. And uh, so I've had to do a reframing of why do I do music? Um, and I even did this to a degree, although not as much for the last Toad record, like having to think about what realizing I'd always had this thing like, ah, I don't care what other people think. Uh, you know, I'm just making my music for me. And it needs to, you know, work for me. And then I started thinking, well, why do I make music for me? And I, I kind of, not all of it. Sometimes I use it to work through my grief, to work through problems. Sometimes it's like letters from my future better self to try to give me better perspective as I'm working through things. Um, and, and so if it's, you know, if it's kind of a conversation with my higher self, trying to find. Uh, some truths without pamphleteering. You know, I don't like songs that sound like someone's got it all worked out and they're telling you what to think. <laughs> uh, but I started going, okay, these songs heal me. I need them. And uh, I just need to think that that's their function in the world. And it's not uh, to get me back on the radio or to get me the press that Jason Isbell gets or, you know, any of the other traps I get in. Like, I want to be legitimized. I want NPR to want me. I want, I want to be on fucking tiny desk. They'll never fucking have me. Like, and so that, uh, you know, and I, I, I've always had these, you know, I made a, yeah, I, there's always been this hope that I'll somehow be legitimized by the external world. And finally, part of it was by finding community singing and realizing that there was this entire community that is non-transactional and not even performative. You know, where it's just, yes, there's a, someone teaching and leading the song, but it is just people singing and sharing together. And there's no star of the scene. And when it's done, everybody goes, we did that. And it is really deeply based. On, I mean, there is, you know, when I started song leading, I did the first year without asking for, I, I started it without asking for any money because I wanted to do something that was entirely out of generosity and not asking anything back. And when people asked to start paying, I gave all away all the money. We, every week was just a, a benefit. And so we gave all the, away all the money for the first year. And I only allowed myself to get paid after a year of doing it. Um, even when COVID started, I started doing live streams and I just started doing five um, benefits a week on Facebook Live because they had this donate button. I took it down after a few weeks to three, um, but I've raised over a hundred thousand for charities. I've, um, and I eventually like people are like, how do we pay you? And I, so I started putting, you know, on the 
side, like the show description, I put my PayPal and my Venmo and people have been being generous, but I just decided like give first and take later. And I'm starting to get exhausted finding three charities a week. So I'm going to probably take down to one and I'm also making less and I need to pay rent and all these things. But I mean, so you were rotating the charities every week, uh, three times a week, three times a week. I think I've had only four repeats. Holy! (laughs) (laughs) It's been a lot of work. That's a lot of work. And so, um, and so, but it's been good and there's a community that's developed around it. That's really supportive of each other. And it's, you know, helping people have something to check into and, I need to figure out a way of reworking it so that it's less stressful for me and takes less of my time. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm doing that. I'm doing a Toad album. I'm taking a psych class because I decided it was a good year to go back to school. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm teaching songwriting, uh, songwriting online as well. I'm doing Zoom classes and that's been really wonderful. And, and so um, it's been busy, uh, but, but, There was something in getting, like, instead of trying to get my career forward, I just want to do shit that matters. And, um, and, and I've also in the course of that understood that Toad matters and going and playing those songs from the nineties matters. And that for people, you know, those memories and, uh, that community they feel and what they tap into when they hear those songs does matter to them. Um, so I've been I, in that room. It's that's that's a correct observation. Yeah, and I've had to value it instead of running away from it. There, there is part of that world. Uh, the thing I've related it to is, you know, the uncle in uh, in Napoleon Dynamite who always wanted everybody <laughs> to sit down and watch that pass that he did in high school. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I feel like when you've had a hit, I don't need to see that pass again. But it's kind of like everybody else wants me to wants to show me that pass again. And I'm like, nah, yeah, it was a good pass. Yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm kind of more interested in now. I, you know, I'm really now is totally working for me. And there's this thing that keeps pulling you back to the past over and over and over that can get kind of exhausting. Is there a way for you? Do you, have you figured out a way to like reinterpret it in your mind or in the way you perform it that works for you to keep it? Yeah. Fresh, I, I, so to speak. A gratitude. I, I, it, the fact gratitude. that something that meant something to people and it still means something to people. And that I realize if I went and saw the replacements um, and if he didn't play unsatisfied, I would be sad. Right. Yes. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and, and he wrote that song a long time ago, you know, and you know, Grant Lee Phillips is a good friend of mine and, and I love his solo material and happiness is still the song that like drives me crazy with how good it is that I would, I would forsake all his other songs for that because it means something to me also because of when I heard it. Right. And, right. And, and there's something like I went, you know, going Joni Mitchell right now, songs are like tattoos. You know, there's, I didn't get tattoos until the last, you know, five years kind of post-divorce and um, with a kind of realization that what was going to take me out of um, my despair and this despair that I'd carried with me, I've always tended towards depression. I really got depressed when the band, like that 
keeping a contact with gratitude. And um, once again, for me, spiritual practice and God is, is almost synonymous with gratitude. It's um, being able to realize that I could be many things. Almost nothing in the universe gets to be a human being with consciousness of this type. Who knows what other types of consciousness there may or may not be. But this is a very brief gift. And it's and to see it as anything else is lazy. <laughs> and and so when I, you know, put the marker on my arm that I did, um, you know, it was about taking um that gift of consciousness and spiritual energy, turning it into beauty in the world and being part of that reciprocity where things consume each other and change and make something new and beautiful out of that. And that, that, you know, all those ever widening circles, I like, I needed that on my skin so I wouldn't forget it. And, um, songs do the same thing. And so for me, like, man, unsatisfied was there when I really needed to learn some things about myself and intolerability and, and same with, you know, the whole of the moon or the pan with like, oh man, all the songs, this is the sea, like fucking unbelievable or Husker do, you know, finally getting over it. And like, it, it's, uh, there's, there's so many great songs that changed my life and, and they still keep coming. And, uh, so yeah, I, I like, I, I understand uh, and, and part of it was a, either a false modesty or, or even just a, a depreciation of myself that I didn't think my songs could provide that from anyone else. I had enough feeling of despair and of worthlessness in myself uh, that I couldn't believe in the value of what I'd created. Wow. Well, I appreciate that honesty. Um, I, I know you're the and I tend to have these traits, you know, the hardest person on oneself is oneself. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I wish you weren't because I mean, what you've contributed means a lot to a lot of us um, and your talent and your just, I don't know, your generosity. Um, but if give I, yourself a break is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm always learning how, but I also think, I mean, if I, you know, and, and if this period in my life, it's like, I've been trying to figure out what do I do next? Do I, and do I end up doing therapeutic work, music therapy, psychedelic therapy? Do I end up, um, doing more in the way of community singing? Um, do I have, instead of concentrating on my solo records is something that's competing with, you know, Toad in this pop space, do I kind of let that be that? And then try to do more playing in situations that are a hybrid of the community singing that are a hybrid of like a spiritual experience and a concert and that are really inclusive. And that really excites me. And, and so, um, I'm thinking more about purpose than I am about, uh, business strategy. And, um, and with that, I have to also go, okay, what is my offering? And, I think a lot of my offering has always been about uh, how do you deal with being a sensitive soul in the modern world, right? How do you feel deeply and not get crushed by it or not just build a bunch of armor around it? You know, back to David White, if you haven't read his poems, please do. Uh, but he, he talks so much about vulnerability 
um, and you know the strength and vulnerability. And so rather than shutting down, tamping it, putting it away, is can you gain the resource to feel it all and still show up and to stand in the middle of uh, you know, a world that is really hard to look at and not just be overwhelmed by grief? Um, and how do you stand there and still move forward? You know, I heard this one definition of hope that was that, you know, hope is optimism is thinking everything's okay. I don't need to do anything. Uh, despair is thinking everything's fucked. I don't need to do anything, uh, cause it won't change it. Hope is not knowing the outcome, but knowing what you probably should do because it's the, the path of the heart, right? And doing that anyway. <laughs> and so uh that what else are you going to do you know as mary oliver said with your one precious life so um i mean so for me like if if what i share is vulnerability um if i don't have those demons to wrestle with and the thing i've noticed about the teachers i like uh whether it's jack cornfield or pema chodron or or clara bratch those are all more on the buddhist side or david white Mary Oliver, like they all sit in the shit of it. They all feel all the things and none of them pretend for a second they don't. Um, what they understand is that they have a choice in what they do with that material and that they can gain enough uh, presence in their mind uh, and enough spiritual practice um, that they can uh, essentially have a, a spiritual core strength that enables them instead of tamping that down to experience it and move forward um, with, you know, with some resilience. And so just like the, the only like people I know who work in recovery um, or let me say 98, well, the vast majority of people I know who work in like addiction and recovery work are addicts, Right whether they're working in a 12 step modality or whether they're working in, you know, all the many other, uh, you know, realms of recovery, addicts don't want to talk to somebody who hasn't been there. If you, you know, if, if you're in County medical because you're a heroin addict and you, you know, it's like you're, you, anyone who comes in and hasn't been there, you're just going to say, fuck you. It, it, you know, it, there's, there's no other response and, and with good reason, you don't get it. Right. And, um, and I know when I've talked about, you know, some of what I go through with depression with people who haven't experienced depression, they often, you know, it's like, Oh, I just, it's, you know, just get sunny. You can do it. It's all right. I wish you didn't have this people who've been there. They go, oh God, you too. Yeah. That one's really hard. What do you do? Uh, and, and instead of trying to cure it, I mean, I kind of think of depression as being deep sensitivity, uh, with, uh, a little bit of an imbalance of, uh, environmental factors and, uh, and, you know, decision-making and, and, uh, you know, unhealthy maybe habits or, or mental practices, you know, you can feed depression by, not exercising. You can feed depression with a poor diet. You can feed depression by, you know, reading the news all the time obsessively, something I'm really trying to stop again. Um, there are all these things you can do to help depression out. You can drink regularly, even a tiny, you know, 
I, I, if I drink, um, you know, even one day takes me down, but if I drink more than one day consecutively, I just lose hope and I start hating my life. And it's just what that does to me. And I don't have to drink much. Um, and so it's like a realization of, you know, all these contributing factors. Um, and then of getting enough stillness in your life and getting enough resource, you know, with these other things that you can start getting practices that allow you some mindfulness and allow you some peace. And at the end of the day, I keep, when I'm in a good space with it, I realize that like when I find peace, it doesn't mean I don't feel the grief. It just means I have a better objective experience of it. And it means I can hold on to it and contain it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed with, uh, like, you know, mindfulness practice, Vipassana meditation is when I first did it, I went to a Gwenka school and you sit for about 11 hours a day for 10 straight days. And I have rarely been in that much pain in my life. <laughs> you know, for like the first four days, it was just agony in my back. And then at some point I just changed how I thought of the pain realized I wasn't being injured. It was just hurting and it would change. And once I stopped obsessing on it, it did change. And I went through the same process when I sliced the ulnar nerve. My, my left hand is partially paralyzed now. I can't, I can barely use the pinky. Um, so had to relearn how to play guitar and, you know, didn't want to get on opiates. So I had like about a year and a half of insane nerve pain with that. And once again, I had to just learn how to suffer um, or how to experience pain without adding suffering or story or drama to it. And um, there's no way to get through life without pain. And so it's more a question of like, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> right. Well, dude, I would love, I love the direction you took this. I wish I had more time to explore further, but that's, you know, I appreciate your honesty around that and your sharing. Um, Thank you. we so all, which company is sponsoring you, excuse me, which mattress company is sponsoring you? <laughs> mattresses, right? Stop. I have no sponsors. So they will but come. Thank you so much for sharing Glenn Phillips. Um, You're anything but my pillow. That's what I, I say. I, that's for sure. Um, I appreciate you as a friend. I definitely respect you as an artist. Um, and as a holistic human, um, you sharing and working through the pain and sharing that with the rest of us, what, you know, the rest of us are all going through our own versions, I suppose, right now. So I appreciate your yeah, transparency. Everybody, everybody has gone through it right now. Yes. So I look forward to the new music with Toad and we will do this again, I suppose, when that is ready to go. Yeah. Thank so, you. Thank you for being here. Very grateful. All right. Talk to you soon. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. <laughs> <laughs>